This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. In today's episode, author and TED Talk speaker, Dr. Allison McGregor shares the disparities in women's health and offers solutions on how women can and should be more empowered in their decision-making. Dr. McGregor is the co-founder and director of Sex and Gender and Emergency Medicine in Brown University's Department of Emergency Medicine. Her TED Talk, Why Medicine Often Has Dangerous Side Effects for Women, has been viewed over 1.5 million times. She's also author of Sex Matters, How Male-Centric Medicine Endangers Women's Health and What We Can Do About It. The insights she shares are informative and credible given she both practices medicine and conducted significant research to uncover and validate the flaws in medicine for women. I can assure you this episode is an eye-opening one. Please join me in welcoming Dr. McGregor. Hi, Allison. It's so nice to have you on the FemPower Health Podcast. Welcome. Hi, Georgie. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with telling everyone about your very impressive background. Well, I was born and raised in uh, Rhode Island, and um, I always wanted to be a doctor. Um, I don't know why my parents were not physicians, but it was something that was always inside me. And so I realized, gosh, that's a really challenging thing to accomplish. And um, I had to sort of figure it out. And um, I eventually uh, went through all the training and medical school at Boston University and then residency at Brown University in emergency medicine. Um, And so I've stayed there uh, as faculty ever since, and I love it. It's a very busy level one trauma center, and I get to see lots of patients uh, with lots of different conditions, and it's uh, very fulfilling to be part of their life in that way at such a moment of crisis. Tell us about how you got into um, having such a passion around women's health and how that plays out in, in medical practices. So I was always very in tune with women's rights and um, the women's health movements of the 60s and 70s. I always felt very grateful to the women then who worked so hard to fight for equality for women. And so I kept that always as something of an interest and something that I followed and a passion of mine. And so when I finally finished all of the training and started to work as a physician, because I stayed on at Brown University, it's an academic institution. And so I really wanted to do clinical research. And so I thought, well, here's my chance to meld my interest in improving lives for women and uh, medicine. And so as I started to develop project ideas and look for mentors and advisors, and I told them that I wanted to research 
women's health, they immediately thought that I meant reproductive health, so obstetrics and gynecology. There was this assumption that uh, that was equal to women's health. And so I thought about that and I said, well, you know, I'm in the emergency department and women are there for many other things besides their reproductive system, um, heart attacks and strokes and infections. And so I started to really wonder why there was this assumption that women were really uh, distilled down to their reproductive organs. And so about that time, the cardiovascular literature started to declare that women can present differently when having a heart attack than men. And so it was perfect timing for me because I really thought, well, that is very interesting. Why would women present differently than men? Is it because they have different anatomy, their hearts are different? Is it the way that they develop heart disease that's different? And if that's the case, what about all the other conditions that I see every time I'm on a clinical shift? So that was really my moment where I thought, I'm going to explore this more and started to develop sex and gender as my uh, clinical research focus at Brown. And, you know, with the work that you've done at Brown, you've taken it to the next level and both had a a very popular TED Talk and then written a book, Sex Matters, How Male-Centric Medicine Endangers Women's Health and What Women Can Do About It. So with, with what you've seen being in the field of medicine, what drove you to decide to write a book about this and all the research that you were uncovering in your time at Brown? I spent the last decade or so researching and publishing in scientific literature and adding to the evidence that these differences are important and can you know, mean life or death for women. And I also have worked very hard at bringing that knowledge into health professions education, because that's where we really learn and uh, teach our future healthcare providers. And so I want them to really appreciate how important these differences are and to, um, you, you know, sort of think about them, the differences in a very natural way, you know, instead of um, trying to learn it um, while you're already been practicing for 10, 15 years, it really needs to be included into medical education. And then I would show up for another clinical shift and I would see the health disparities that women face right in front of me, um, you know, every day. And so I thought we, we just don't have time to waste. I, I can't wait for research to catch up and for the medical edu- education to check uh, to catch up. I want women to be able to uh, learn about this in a way that they can feel empowered and to be their best advocate in the healthcare system and to help to work within it to help improve it on a quicker scale. You know, there's a quote from your book, if, uh, if women want to really, uh, in a, a short way, bring this home on like how big of a deal it is. And, and I just appreciate that you're a physician who did the research and wrote about this so that it doesn't come across as, like, I feel like if I were to say, you know, some of the statements that you stated in your book, 
um, you know, it would come across as, oh, I'm just an angry patient, right? But you share so much data. And what you said is this isn't only a women's, a woman's perception of how they're treated uh, by their doctors and providers. This is a scientifically validated reality in the world of medicine because women are misdiagnosed, undertreated, underserved in part because providers don't believe them when they say something is wrong. And for all the women out there who have been trying to voice what is going on with them and have not been heard, you know, here we have a physician who has done the research and shows the data. So maybe you could talk a little bit about maybe a, a couple of the data points that you share in your book to really hone in on the challenges at hand. Sure. So if you look at the big ones, um, so heart disease, uh, women are less likely to be diagnosed when having a heart attack. They're less likely to be treated with evidence-based medicine when having a heart attack. This is all compared to men. They are less likely to undergo basic diagnostic testing compared to men. And so they have higher mortality rates. And so with just that one example, you, if you peel it apart, it's because the public has been taught male patterns of disease. And so um, the messaging is that if you have a large uh, elephant sitting on your chest, you have crushing chest pain that radiates down your left arm, that could be a heart attack. And so you should call 911. But that's not how women present most of the time. Women present with shortness of breath or fatigue or, um, you know, just a discomfort. It's, you know, um, and so, so they're not recognizing it and they're waiting and delaying seeking care. And then they go finally to the doctor and the doctor doesn't recognize it. The nurse might not recognize it right away. The testing isn't um, ordered right away. It may not even be thought of. And so then they're sent home and they get worse. Um, so these are things that are uh, ingrained into our medical system. I, I don't believe that doctors want to do harm to women. It's just how our system was designed. When we have used men as our model for health and disease, and we had this assumption that it would be close enough that you know we could just apply it to women, that has not turned out well for women's health. No, that's very true. And I think one of the fairly famous examples, it may not be known by all, but so maybe we can bring it up, is it's, it's Xanax, right? Is that the one where they found that the dosing for men and women needed to be different because of the impact? That was the medication, correct? It was Zolpidem, um, Ambien. So Ambien. Um, okay, sorry. Yes. I don't know why I thought it was Xanax. Sorry about that. That's okay. Yeah. No. I mean, there's, there's, there's. I mean, Xanax. There's, there's data out there too. I mean, and every medication really is, is at risk for, for having bad unknown uh, effects against women. But the real flagship for that is the uh, sleep drug uh, Ambien, which has been on the market for you know 25 years now, and. The studies were originally done in men, and the drug was actually prescribed more for women because women have more sleep disorders than men. And so women were taking this drug, and what happens is after a drug has been approved and it's out in the market and it's widely being used, at that point, really the only thing that 
we can do, physicians, pharmacists, patients, if you feel as though you're having a bad reaction to a medication, you can go online and do a, uh, put in a report. So the um, drug monitoring system looks at these. And so what they started to see was that there were just about a thousand reports of women the morning after taking Ambien had uh, motor vehicle crashes related to being impaired. So they woke up, you know, thinking that they were, um, you know, hoping to be well-rested. And then they would get in the car to go to work or drive their children around and would suffer from a motor vehicle crash. Now, I work, you know, in an emergency department. I see the motor vehicle crash results. And we're not talking about, uh, you know, a backache or a neck sprain. We're talking about life and death. We're talking about real uh, traumatic uh, consequences. Um, and so what happened was the drug company uh, started to um, look at this. They wanted to make a new formulation of the drug. And so they said, well, we have these reports. Let's, let's look at this. And they gave it to both men and women in the study. And then they waited the amount of time the bottle says you should get sleep. So if you, know, if you should, says you should make sure you get four hours of sleep, they waited four hours. Then they put men and women in driving simulation studies. So these are the same types of studies we use to determine uh, alcohol uh, levels in driving and find out what's, what's safe and what's not. And when they did that, the women did horrible in the driving simulation. And so they stopped, they took blood serum concentrations of the drug, and they found that women had two times the serum concentrations compared to men. They were given the same dose, but women metabolized it differently than men. So they had higher amounts still left in their system in the morning. And that just demonstrates how important just something like that really has a higher consequences. And so we need to make sure that we test drugs, especially in both men or women, because the metabolism can be different. And we want sex-specific dosing and to understand uh, what side effects might be different between men and women. So maybe you can talk a little bit about, I mean, obviously women, you know, at the most basic level, we could say women have their monthly cycle and, you know, they have these hormones that change throughout the cycle. But there were a couple of other things you mentioned in the book around just the way uh, women process some of the ingredients that are in these medications. And so it's more than just the hormones. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that just so people understand why this is the case. And it's not just a situation with Ambien, but, but generally taking any sort of medication. From the moment you take a medication, your body starts to break it down. So it wants to break it down so that it can be absorbed and um, you know, travel through your whole system. Then that medication will have its action. And then the body says, okay, we're ready to excrete it. So you know, it starts to break it down uh, in a different way. And um, the liver enzymes and uh, your kidney function tries to get rid of the medication. What we have found is that there are very important differences in every single one of those steps between men and women that can actually affect how that drug is, uh, has its effect, um, how it's, if it has a toxic effect or, or different side effects. So this is something that is 
um, very important for, for, for many medications. So for instance, um, the hormones uh, that occur during women's cycle um, also can turn on or off certain enzymes. So there's a, a, a couple drugs that are used for seizure disorders. And so what we have recently discovered is that during certain phases of the menstrual cycle, the that particular drug that a woman is taking to prevent her having a seizure may drop down and not be as effective because of the hormone levels have changed. And so what happens is that woman is now susceptible to having a seizure during certain times of the menstrual cycle. But what happens is we don't really take that into account. So instead, the woman is told, oh, she's, you know, she can't drive, or we have to increase the dose of that medication for the entire month, um, and which makes her more susceptible to the side effects and things like that. So these are, you know, um, things that we should be taking into account, uh, that women's unique physiology So we can't necessarily go back in the past and redo all of these clinical trials. I know my passion for women's health actually came in 1992 when uh, the FDA started talking about um, the need for women to be part of clinical trials. And, you know, Maya Dusenberry in her book, uh, I think it's called Doing Harm, she talks about how that really didn't happen for a long time. Um, And as the evidence shared by what you're saying, it, it still hasn't fully happened. So trying to be solution-oriented here, there's a, a quote from your book. Um, actually, it's two quotes in the same chapter, but they go together. And then I'd love to get your comments on, on what women can do. So one is, you know, we are no longer in the era of Dr. Knows Best. And then the next one is, while I don't advocate for self-diagnosis via the internet, having a baseline understanding of your current Uh, prescriptions and how they might function in your female body is a great way to start a conversation with your provider. So tell us a little bit about like, okay, so here's a situation. I, as a woman, maybe put on medications and I want to feel empowered. Um, What kind of research should a woman be doing to be prepared and ensure she's on not only the right medication, but the proper dose? So that's key. And um, I really do believe that women who do research, you know, just even with the internet, um, reading your prescription package inserts and um, really taking a vested uh, interest in your own health um, and taking ownership of the accuracy of your own personal medical record. Uh, You know, a lot of things are now electronic medical records where things are copied and pasted and shared and uh, across different hospital systems. And if they are not accurate, then, um, you know, you, you don't realize that you might not be receiving correct care. So by doing your own research, asking questions, you know, of, um, of, of your doctor, is this medication, uh, was it tested on me if I'm a woman? Um, should I take a different dose? I know that there's been, uh, uh, you know, this drug Ambien had a different dose for both men and women that the FDA recommend, recommended. Um, feel free to inform your doctors and look at them as a very well-educated and experienced uh, advisor, um, you know, a consultant 
in your own healthcare. Um, advocate for yourself. Uh, get second opinions if you feel as though that something isn't being uh, taken seriously. Um, I also encourage women to make sure that they express their motives for the visit. So if your motive is you just want to be free from pain for a couple hours, you just want to be heard, you, um, you feel as though that uh, you think you might have cancer because your family member was just diagnosed, um, you want a note for work, you want a referral to a specialist, be very open and blunt about what your needs are. And um, I think that will really help open the dialogue between you and your consultant, your, your physician, to really get a more personalized care treatment. And I think that's such a fair statement is to look at your physician as a consultant, because I mean, if you think about it, especially if you're a general practitioner, um, the amount of things that you have to keep track of is immense. And then when you get to be a specialist, there's still immense detail, but it's just, you know, to a different degree. And trying to memorize the package and sort of every medication type plus the brand plus the generic, like it's it's a lot to keep track of. And, and you're right, physicians are trained on the general aspects and some will know more than others about certain topics just because of patients they see, the training that they had. Um, but looking at them as that consultant, I think is very fair. And I know the internet can sometimes be frustrating um, even to physicians because someone may come in <laughs> with maybe too much information but um, or the wrong information. But I think it is at least also on the other spectrum empowering people. I, I agree. And it's inevitable. Um, you know, I worked a shift last evening and um, this, you know, this woman was uh, very upset and I was talking to her about her condition. And then I said, what are you worried about? Like, what is concerning you? And she said, I looked on the internet and I thought, you know, I might have this and that. And I, you know, and so I want them to tell me um, and, and to share that. So that way we can talk about why I think they might or may not have those, those things. So um, I think, you know, asking people to not do their own research and to not look on the internet is just an unrealistic, um, uh, you know, unhealthy perspective. Absolutely. Now, one thing I also want to say, um, just because of my um, background, is that it, it isn't necessarily always easy to conduct these clinical trials. So we certainly don't want to bash those who are manufacturing the products. I know that in my career, I once had to put together a document for an FDA hearing because a lot of people with um, sub uh, with different subpopulations, um, we're really trying to push the FDA to advocate for clinical trials that took into account all these patient populations. And essentially the conclusion of the research um, document that we shared with the FDA was that if you took into account every patient population, clinical trials would never be complete because of how many patients you'd have to enroll. But then you also look at, we're such a diverse population now that it's, it's impossible to find like a pure this or that. 
And I know that, and by the way, I'm not at all minimizing the need for this, but I think I just wanted to educate people. It's not as straightforward as just put women in the trials. Um, You know, there's a lot of complicated aspects. I'm certainly not a clinical trial expert, but I just know from working on that project, it's not black and white. Um, But I do think, you know, more effort does need to be put in to enroll women. I'm hoping people can get creative more and more over time. So I did want to at least mention that. Yeah, I, I agree. And the, the FDA does have a demographic rule where they now um, at least require the listing of uh, uh, gender, race, um, and you know, some more demographic um, uh, qualities of those who are enrolled. However, there is no mandatory rule that says that that study has to analyze the data differently based on sex. So part of the issue is that you mentioned, we can't just sort of sprinkle women in a clinical trial and then feel as though that it is, it's appropriate because, you know, um, um, a male body may have a positive effect on on a test and the female body may have a negative effect. And so when you combine the two, you're canceling things out. Um, And so the way that I look at this is that sex as a biological variable is a very um, important scientific difference between men and women, you know, from the cellular level, from the chromosomal level. And so for, for so long, men have been the standard and then women have been a subgroup of men, just like socioeconomic class or age or race, um, that women. So what I think that we should be looking at this is that men and women both are these unique biological human beings. And then we should do our best to look for subgroups of age and race and culture and and that sort of thing. But we have a different physiologic makeup that um, needs to be appreciated from the very start. Absolutely. We talked about the, I don't know how we got straight to the the treatment. So let's go backwards (laughs) and talk about the diagnosis. So there were some really interesting examples that you shared. One was your husband, um, who is also a physician, in a locker room with a fellow male doctor talking about um, how he uh, <laughs> looks at some of the women patients. I don't know if you want to share that story or uh, another story, but I think it would be helpful to bring to light just how, um, you know, as you said, and we're, all, we're not at all saying like men on purpose are trying to mistreat women. Uh, male doctors are bad. We're not at all saying any of that. I think we're, you know, the point even in your book is just, it's just these underlying biases that it's not like people wake up in the morning saying, this is what I'm going to do, but there are these things that happen. And I think it's important for people to have a reality check on that so that they don't feel dismissed when they go into their doctor's office. Yes, I know. It's very, (laughs) that story, yes, my husband's also a physician. And so I get to see um, his perspective. Uh, We work at different hospitals. And so it's, it's, he'll always come home with, with some stories that he knows that I, I I cringe or I want to hear, you know, Um, it just sort of fuel, fuels my passion. But um, yeah, it was about this neurologist who said that, you know, there's an algorithm that uh, he follows that when um, someone comes in with um, 
you know, subjective uh, tingling. You know, it's, it's not objective. It's not easy for a doctor to see. It's just the patient is saying they feel strange. Um, that his algorithm was that if that patient was a male, that um, he would be concerned for a stroke and do a CT scan right away. Uh, if it was a female, he would just say it's anxiety. And that really sort of hits home what happens a lot, which is just this, this bias. And I believe it's, it's there because we, w- women have so many conditions that aren't fully understood. They, um, you know, they're given all of these um, wastebasket diagnoses, like syndrome. So syndrome just means a collection of symptoms. So fibromyalgia is not really understood, irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, chronic pain, all of these things that women are experiencing because we haven't studied their unique physiology um, and, and health and disease. So they don't fit into the paradigm that we have been taught. We, we spend, you know, 15, 20 years learning to be a doctor, um, you know, through all of the, uh, the education. And and it's on-the-job training. We're looking at our colleagues and learning how they view things. And so if our you know, teachers come out and say, oh, that woman you know, doesn't fit any of the things that I was taught in medical school, so it must just be in her head, that gets passed on and passed on and passed on. And then women just feel like this, there's an emotional fatigue involved of not being understood and being passed off to uh, you know, specialist and specialist, and 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 so it's it's that cycle of of implicit bias that we need to really stop. You mentioned when, um, as we were getting to know each other in, in one of our previous calls, about how I think it was at a medical conference. You were um, going to be giving a talk, and I think the room was empty or had maybe a colleague of yours who was interested in hearing the topic come. But now, you know, you have this book, you have the TED Talk, and now people are really starting to attend the symposiums that you're giving around this topic. So what shifted and what type of reception are you getting from your colleagues? The shift is that the data, so doctors really, and scientists, the researchers, I mean, they are uh, very much data-driven. And so when I, um, over a decade ago, thought this was, you know, so important and, you know, I had a a symposium that no no one showed up to, I thought, I need to start publishing, uh, you know, a lot. I need to publish scientific evidence that shows that this is a real thing. And once that started happening, then uh, the community uh, at large is is like, oh, wow, I guess that is important. Um, So I think it's something that now I, I feel as though it's inevitable. Like you can't unknow this now. Um, you know, once, once I showcase or once, you know, someone reads or, or understands that there's are important differences in their particular specialty, then you can't just go back to ignoring that, you know? Um, so I do feel as though it's, it is an inevitable change and things like the NIH having, um, Uh, a requirement for grant funding that sex as a biological variable be part of the design really sort of sets the bar that we are talking about high quality research. 
we need our research results to be generalizable to who they apply to. So if we can no longer assume that by studying men, that that result would be generalizable to women. And so, you know, it's really important when someone like the NIH uh, embraces this as a quality measure. There's another part in your book where you were talking about, and and by the way, I appreciate that, you know, people are listening and that you get that it was really the data. And I would say that that's what makes your book so amazing is you share so many data points. Um, Even there was one around uh, a major review of literature. And if I wrote the number down correctly, it's 4.5 million papers. Was it million or thousand? (laughs) It's a lot of papers. But, uh, you know, in, in reviewing that, women that were in a prominent position, meaning they were the first and last author we're more likely to enroll women, analyze data to determine the gender differences. Um, and we know that women tend to think of women. Um, so I think that was, was a really interesting point too, is like you, you reviewed the literature and this is what it showed. And I think you're right. I mean, that, what can you do with that? <laughs> it's, it's the right. data. Um, you know, because what, when I started to delve into this, I had lots of colleagues who were really interested in promoting women's uh, leadership, making sure that women are promoted, make sure that they have equal pay. Um, and so I looked at this as, and thought, well, I want to talk about and, and study the women as the patient, not, not, not necessarily the career, but, but as like, um, you know, the other, the other aspect of this. And so what I've realized now is that they actually go together very well because women do think of women's issues. And so when we promote women in, in, in science and uh, in medicine and we um, give them the grants for, that they need for research, um, what we find is that they are more likely to enroll women and to do you know, sex and gender-based analysis. So, so this, it's sort of like, uh, twofold, like, you know, a- advocating for one will, will help the other. And that's, that's been really joyful to, to realize. What could and should women do so that when they do go to their doctor and maybe they don't feel heard, or maybe they just want to go and prepared, whatever the, the situation, what should they do to get the optimal diagnosis and care? Uh, they should, you know, I, I sort of have a, um, in a sort of a worksheet in the back of the book, which helps them put together and organize their medical history. So that's the first thing they need to do is to really organize what tests they've had, when they've had them, what the result was, all the list of their doctors, the list of their medications, whether they smoke and what's their alcohol intake, all of these things. The doctor is not there to judge. We, we really, we just want to know as much information about every patient so that way we can use that and put that into our computer brain and, you know, and to, to have some help. Also, I think, you know, bringing an advocate with you um, is also very, very helpful. It's been challenging during the pandemic because lots of people can't have family members with them in the examining rooms. But having that person be there for you as a second opinion is also very crucial. 
For instance, if you are emotional um, because you're in pain or you are emotional because you, uh, you know, are, this is your third visit in a week and you just, you, if you have someone with you that says, this is not how she normally is, or, you know, she has anxiety, but it presents differently than this, or, you know, can really help put it into perspective for the physicians, I find very helpful. Also, they can help remember things. They can, you know, it's hard to remember everything that something's, you know, a physician said, and you walk out the door, and you're like, what did they say? Having someone else there, I think would be very beneficial. Those are great suggestions. I know some of the specific ones that I I believe it was um, in your book. If not, it was through one of our conversations. But in essence, it's covered in your book in in some fashion is one, owning your own medical record and the accuracy of it. And um, you have the worksheet, obviously, in the back. But I love the idea of even photographing a list of your medications. So if you don't want to write them down, take your phone out and go to your medicine cabinet and take a picture of the medications. Um, and then if, if needed or possible, keep track of all of this information in an app and make sure that it's updated. And then if it needs to be downloaded or however, just um, to make sure your doctor sees it. I know that for fertility specifically, a lot of women are tracking their monthly cycle and taking their basal body temperatures, et cetera. And I know those are those prove really, really helpful. So you're right. Any data you're providing the physician, one, it helps when you have those really short seven-minute doctor appointments to really get focused, but it also just helps make sure that information is accurate for that detective work the provider needs to do. Absolutely. And the, you know, the smartphones just make it much easier. So um, I'm always looking at people's photos. They, they, they take photos of their medications or you know, their, their car after their car accident. So I could see the, the mechanism and the damage and it's just all great information. So um, the apps are a great idea as well, because it just kind of keeps you organized. Yes. And I'm sure we would agree that if a doctor dismisses that information, one may consider going elsewhere. <laughs> yes. And feel free to do that. I mean, it's hard, you know, if you're in an, emer- in an emergency, then um, it's hard to uh, dictate who's caring for you. But in general, um, if you don't resonate, especially with your general practitioner, then that is not the, the right doctor for you. Um, it's, you know, it's, this isn't um, the dictatorship that it used to be. It ha- it's a partnership. The other thing I wanted to cover with you around doctor appointments that I think is is such an important nuance, and I don't recall the terminology you used, but it's essentially like the alarmist, the person who is probably, they've gone to doctor after doctor, they're in a lot of pain, they've been struggling, they haven't heard, whatever the dynamic, and they get to doctor number seven or they're now in the emergency room and they're just really, really, really upset and how that impacts their care. So maybe you can talk about how that works and some evidence behind that. Because I think that is a really, really important point, especially for those who are really just shopping for the doctor who will listen to them. So that particular example, so if a woman, um, say a woman came in with uh, some chest discomfort, right? So we'll, we'll keep that. And then, you know, one doctor says, oh, that could be GERD. It could be reflux. 
So let me send you, you know, give you this medication and I'll send you to the gastroenterologist. And the gastroenterologist says, it's not reflux. Um, you know, and they do a, a upper endoscopy, they take a look, all these procedures, and they say, it could be your heart. So why don't you go to a cardiologist? And the cardiologist will say, oh, we'll do this test and that stress test and you can start this medication. And then they say, oh, everything's normal. It's not your, your heart. It could be um, your lungs. And on and on and on and on. It could be musculoskeletal. Why don't you see the orthopedic doctor? Well, that woman is just crying out. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's that a fatigue that happens. But the fatigue also can happen on the side of the physician. So if the physician, you know, walks in and sees a woman and the woman is just beside herself because she's, uh, you know, she says, I've had, you know, this test, that test, and this is my sixth time here this month. Oftentimes, especially in the emergency room, we're, we're often like, well, what, should, what can we do that's different? If you've had all this testing, like, what, what, what can we do to, to, that's different? And so we ask ourselves that. And that's where I would often say, what do you hope to get out of this visit? Tell me how frustrating this has been for you. Uh, sometimes it's just instead of um, them feeling dismissed, before they even, uh, you know, walk in the door, um, it, you know, there's a sort of a defeated um, attitude that might be part of the uh, situation for both the doctor and, and the patient. And so I'm hoping that that lessens when we actually learn more about how women present with conditions. So, you know, because when that woman comes in with that, with that pain in a certain spot where we're thinking, of male pattern conditions. And when it doesn't fit, then it becomes a, a guessing game, an educated guessing game, but it becomes a guessing game. And, you know, it's, it's can be very uh, disappointing and disheartening for, for the women. What can a woman do in that situation? Because not every doctor, and I bet that very few would understand that first thing to start with, just hearing the woman out so that she can calm down and not be so frustrated. And she just needs to be heard for that detective work. Because in your book, it, it almost seemed to indicate the doctors in a lot of cases will just shut down and maybe not all be as patient as what else can we do, right? Um, it really impacts the way they perceive that pain. And maybe even, I think you even mentioned that in certain cultures, like um, Hispanic women tend to be more animated. And so there's like bias there. And so like, how, what can a woman do to have a more successful appointment? Because she may not get that doctor like you who knows that they just need to be heard. I think that especially if there's someone like that I just just described, so they're um, you know keep coming in, keep going to specialist. That is the time, and that's the type of person that really needs their general practitioner to be their main umbrella that can put together the results and all the medications that everyone else is trying, um, and and to actually look at it all as as one big picture. So I think that that is um, the key to that type of encounter. You might get people in an, an emergency department who, who have that ability to also pull things together quickly and to uh, advocate for you. Um, you know, but, but it's, it's, you know, it's, you don't always have that 
that uh, option. You know, if, if you're if you're seeing someone who's uh, stressed or they're taking care of other emergencies, there's you know there's a there's that time that's we are waiting you know um, to be seen. And sometimes in our emergency department, it can be you know an average of you know six to eight hours. So that also adds to the frustration when you finally get seen, and then the physician's like, "Well, I don't, you know, what what am I supposed to do now?" Um, so I really feel as though if if you have a complicated medical history, that it's important for you to have your one main advocate that pulls it all together, and um, and and to go for to to start from there. So these have been some incredible takeaways. So before we end with takeaways, are there other things that you think would be helpful for women to know or just helpful information to hear to really help, you know, shed light on the challenges at hand, but the great solutions you outlined in your book? Um, I would say that... You know, one thing that I'm just thinking of, as, as you said, that was back to the women who are researchers. I think a lot of women who are listening to this podcast and um, or will read the book have some sort of role in, you know, a, a committee, a scientific committee, or they're part of a peer review um, or they're a journal editor or they're um, in health education or they work for a pharmaceutical company. And or they're a review board. And so I think it's really important that um, everybody sort of looks at their own policies in place that, are, that, that they are also involved in uh, enforcing or you might have some influence in and to make sure that it's inclusive of uh, both men and women. And so um, I, I think there's a lot of roles that uh, many of us women have um, even if you're not, you know, a specific, you know, in particular, a physician. No, absolutely, and and look what you did <laughs> with with your, you know, research and and passion in writing such a great book. And and again, it it has such credibility because you say the things I think a lot of us know, but maybe question in our own mind or don't have the data and you know, the information you share from the examples of patients that you've seen, um, which added color to the data that you assessed, I think is just incredible. So thank you for taking your passion to, to make a difference and for, you know, really working hard to get that data to establish credibility with, uh, with your colleagues. Thank you so much. I really, um, you know, I, I, there are some books that out there now, like you mentioned, Maya Dusenberries and that are chock full of really important data. I mean, they, they, they get it right, but I really wanted um, it to be from, you know, the physician perspective as well, just to add to the dialogue and to um, affirm that this is actually the way that things are created right now in health and um, how, how can we improve it? So what would you want women to walk away with in our discussion? Like if you, if they had their ideal healthcare, what should they do and what types of things should they look for? Well, I think that um, they should feel empowered and uh, to take control of their medical care. Um, I think that welcoming the complexity of the impact of hormones on our health will lead to a greater uh, scientific understanding of women and and their their um, 
reactions to health and disease. Um, and so I think that what that would really do is that, you know, my greatest hope is that women will receive uh, personalized, you know, safe and effective health care. And that is such a great way to end our discussion. I, I do think the transformation is happening. It is probably slower than we all hoped, but there's great things happening and lots of women who are writing books and getting into the scientific field to make a difference. And thank you for all that you're doing. And thank you for sharing your wisdom. And if you haven't done so, definitely purchase Dr. McGregor's book, Sex Matters. And it's, it's an incredible read and really gives you some great tips on how to take charge of your health care. So thank you for your time and, uh, and your wisdom and passion around women's health. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I've enjoyed our conversations even outside of this podcast. And I just really appreciate your passion uh, for women's uh, health as well. So thank you. 